This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Right now, it is February 16th. We have Jonathan Golubon, um, who is the Chief Equity Strategist at Credit Suisse. We're delighted to have him back on. This marks the third time we've had him on as a guest, and we'll be talking about a lot of macro topics. Uh, so with that, I guess I'll just start us off, um, Jonathan. You know, 2021, we're in the heart of it. We're talking about vaccines, we're talking about some stimulus. What is, the, what, in your view, what is the overall economic trajectory for this year, and what current indicators should we be looking at? Oh gosh! I mean, I, I think the the big single story for for this year overall is that this reopening trade is the largest stimulative event um, ever. Will, will be the largest stimulative event ever in history. And I'm not talking about the government expenditures and spending and zero rate policy. I'm literally talking about all of these people in the United States and abroad who are going to leave their homes that have been stuck here with the inability to spend their, their money and enjoy themselves, and are going to go out and start spending money again. The average American um, received in additional transfer payments from the government $3,500 in 2020, more than they would have the year before. And they've also spent $1,700 less than the year before because they, they can't go out on vacation or, you know, or, or, or what have you. And that, uh, that, uh, that money is going to get put to use. And then on top of that, you have this big inventory restocking, um, that, that's going to happen because, you know, businesses have drawn down their inventories to preserve their capitals and all that needs to get replaced. So, so there, there's going to be an extraordinary amount of, uh, of economic growth in the year ahead. And you, we, we can almost argue whether the level of stimulus that we're getting or, or either we've gotten or we're going to continue to get is even necessary in light of the, uh, the, the reopening process that's going to happen. One of the obvious stories that we've seen so far this year is the Reddit thread with the Wall Street bets and the effect that it has on on several stocks, AMC, GMC. What do we make of this trend? Do you think we're going to continue to see people short squeeze the, the big hedge funds? What's your take on that? You have to you know, almost step back and, and say, well, what's the, what's the real root of, of all of this? I mean, you know, we're sitting at home with not a lot to do. Um, the the government, as I mentioned before, has given us all a bunch of money to to to, to you know to to spend, but we have no ability to to, to spend it. And you have a number of uh, you know retail brokerage firms, trading uh, you know trading oriented companies that are have brought the commissions to zero, so it doesn't cause anything to to engage um, in, in these markets. So it's not surprising that we're seeing a lot of speculative behavior, and and you're seeing it. You know the you know normally around a recession you'd have a collapse in IPO activities. And and they're going through through the moon, and and you're seeing, you know, whether it's in cryptocurrency or whether it's in um, these kind of stocks that you were you're mentioning, you know, by name that have been in the news headlines or a variety of of other things. Um, it's not a surprise that we're that we're seeing this now. In terms of the specifics on short squeezes and things of that nature, the reality is is that it's a really small number of individual stocks that that have been part of this whole discussion. And ultimately, if these companies aren't worth um, 
you know, if they're worth a certain amount of money and they're just getting bid up because people are flooding into them, ultimately they, they, they come back down to, they come back down to earth and we're starting to see that a little bit. But even if you look more broadly, more risky assets are doing well. Smaller caps are outperforming larger caps. Um, companies that have more indebted balance sheets are outperforming those with less debt on their balance sheets. So there's a general re-risking of the market that's going on. And I think that these news headlines are part of that broader story. Um, I think they're getting perhaps a little bit too much newspaper headline. Um, but, but the bigger um, issue around more speculative behavior and more cyclical behavior, I think, is, is, is a more important one. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm not about to put much money into doggy coin right now, but uh, it's certainly been fascinating. Um, oh, for sure. You know, one thing, obviously, you, you mentioned that we have a lot of stimulus coming, but at the same time, right now we're looking at a new administration. We have a Democratic trifecta, you know, albeit a 50-50 split in the Senate. Um, what does that mean for the fiscal policy this year? I do think that they'll try and get maybe this one through budget reconciliation. But at the end of the day, do we see a lot of seismic legislative changes over the next couple of years? Or is the filibuster going to continue to con- the trend towards policy paralysis? Um, you know, it's, it's a it's a great it's a great question. I, I think that, you know, given the the you know, political, um, let's call it political exuberance on both the, on on both in the political left and the political right. I think that there was this opportunity for Joe Biden to kind of be the reunifier in chief, if, if you will. And it's going to, it's going to end up that the stimulus plan that we're getting is not going to be bipartisan at all, that they're going to go very, very quickly to reconciliation, which means that they're avoiding a vote in the Senate, and that and that they only need the the Democrats um, voting for um, for this, um, you know, for for these budgetary uh, legislation, this 1.9 trillion dollars that you're going to get, and I, and to a certain extent, that that probably sets the tone of the way that this is going to play out. Now, you know, if you look at you know, reconciliation process. It doesn't affect everything. There are certain things that it that it's, it it can't affect. It's specifically around budget issues, um, but it, but it does mean that we're going to see more of of uh, of this. So not only will we likely see 1.9 trillion dollars or something close to that in terms of additional fiscal stimulus. Now remember, we just got 900 billion dollars, and last year we got a ton as well. But we're probably going to see something like a couple of trillion dollars of green infrastructure spending that will be passed later in the year, which most likely will also go through the reconciliation process and avoid a congressional vote. And so from a strictly fiscal perspective, yeah, I mean, this looks like the the, the, the route that the Congress and the administration are, are, are pursuing, which, which does mean that there will be a certain amount of ease on getting these these through, and um, but but the, but it doesn't cover everything. And so, for example, um, it, it appears that a higher minimum wage um, would not be uh, or might not be included in this in this reconciliation process um, because it's not it may not be considered to be a budgetary 
kind of issue. So um, it, it does have its limitations, but truly on fiscal stimulus, it looks like the, the market is going to receive an enormous amount of additional uh, capital into the economy. Based on the similar lines of that, on that $1.9 trillion stimulus package, we did see the Congressional Budget Office publish a report stating unemployment could fall to 5.3% from 6.3%, uh, but that does not assume any stimulus. What should be the major takeaways when it comes to this current round of stimulus, uh, specifically around uh, combating unemployment? You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. The, the, the first thing I just want to highlight on the unemployment question is if you look at the forecast by economists in general, they've tended to, and, and by the way, this is the same for security analysts who are predicting corporate profitability, that over the last eight months, that we as an industry have all underestimated how powerful the economy is and how powerful all the stimulus that we have is. So this earnings season, the earnings beat estimates by 17%. Now, what's normal is a 3 or 4% beat, and we got 17%. That's like a six standard deviation upside. It's, it's a crazy number. And you're seeing the same thing with uh, the City Economic Surprise Index, that as the economic data is coming in, it's just way better across the board than, than had been anticipated. The most recent unemployment numbers were expected to come in the last read at 6.3, came in at 6.0. And so, you know, all indications are that the 5.3% that the CBO um, is forecasting that you're talking about, that you're going to see something better than that number, not worse, meaning the unemployment being even lower. And, and, and the one thing that the CBO doesn't do is they don't discount things that haven't been passed into law. They only, they only include the things that have already been passed. So if you, if you did get this green stimulus on top of that and, and, and the like, then, then those numbers could be even substantially um, you know, better. And you'd almost, it almost forces you to ask yourself the question is, are we overstimulating? You know, is, is, it's not that you don't want the unemployment rate to be lower, but are we setting ourselves up to have an economy that potentially overheats and it would be it would be really unfortunate to our feet, but that we set ourselves up for a market environment that may have to have a pullback or the Fed that may have to tighten policy because in fact the the renormalization process was was so much better than we had anticipated. Yeah, I mean, I guess that really alludes to the fact that I mean, right now, I guess if we're not counting what the C- CBO is estimating, another thing to consider along those lines is is inflation, of course. I mean, core inflation is expected to rise to 1.8% in 2021, 1.9% in 2022. So is that something that we should be, you know, cognizant about? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really, it's, it's, first of all, the numbers that you're quoting are, you know, uh, you know, they, they may be what's, what's being forecasted, but if you look at them slightly differently, so there's a tips market, like the, 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 the inflation securities, um, that market is, is actually projecting 3.7% CPI this, this calendar year, which is like an insanely large number. Um, it, it's expecting it to come back down the following year, but, but it's, it's forecasting a really big um, number. And that's not a bunch of economists making predictions. That's actually, you know, people who are putting money you know, putting their own capital at risk to make that bet. And, um, you know, some of that is temporary in nature. So, you know, you want to go to, you know, Paris next winter on vacation 
And, you know, now that we've all taken, you know, maybe we'll all have taken the vaccine or many of us will. And so we're going to want to get out of our house and go away. And those, those hotel rooms are going to be bid up. They're going to be very expensive. And so, so you can say, yeah, but that's not a permanent rise in inflation. That's temporary in nature. Um, you can see that there's going to be some, some kind of quirky one-off things. You know, people in big cities like New York and San Francisco and Chicago, a lot of uh, have many have moved to the suburbs um, during the the crisis, and they want to. You know, um, it's kind of a one-time thing in nature because people have been cooped up in smaller apartments. And you could say, yeah, but that's you know that rise in rents that shows up in inflation, but it's one time in nature. Base effects, you know, the, the fact that when the economy was really depressed in January or February, not January, February, but like March, April of, of 2020, it's going to make the inflation look stronger in March and April of 2021, um, which will be true. But when you add all these together, there's really the risk that the inflationary readings in 2021, this calendar year, look really strong. And there is a risk, and I think it's where you're heading with these questions, and it's the right and most these are the most important questions, which is if the unemployment rate starts to move down to five percent and below, and the inflation starts to pick up, the Fed's mandate of full employment and and reasonable inflation starts to look like like <laughs> they're ready. We're getting or getting close to it. So as we open this economy up, listen, I'm very bullish on the stock market over the next six to nine months or longer. I think that the, the stimulus is going to be very good for corporate profits. I think valuations, even though they're quite high, I think they'll, they'll go higher. But if there's something that could go wrong, it's the fact that we're getting too much of, uh, of the stimulus. And, and the things to look at are exactly what you're asking about is unemployment and inflation. Watch those numbers. It's going to tell you whether the market's getting ahead of itself. And if the market gets ahead of itself, that's reason to you know, ease back a little bit because you, you could get a, a correction on that. And if we do think about valuations and we just think about uh, growth stocks versus value stocks, we've seen some of the smaller stocks, U.S. stocks, uh, have the biggest market gains this year. But we do have, as you mentioned, economic trend growth uh, positive, hopefully for this year, looking at GDP uh, growth, getting back to some bit of normal the distribution of the vaccine. And then also, as you mentioned, when when people can finally go out and travel, they're going to party like it may be uh, Woodstock again. But is there a case to be made for value stocks coming back compared to the growth stocks that we've seen rise, uh, outperform value stocks over the last couple of years? You know, I, I, the answer is is yes. But let, let me maybe kind of frame my my point of view first. I think that over the next five years, that that technology and growth companies and companies that leverage innovation and intellectual property are going to be the winners. They, they have been for the last, you know, 10 years or longer, and I think that they're going to continue to be. But that doesn't mean that they win every, every day or every month or quarter or even year. And the, there's a certain type of an environment that is best for value, and it's an environment of economic reacceleration. That's when value really wins big. Um, what are the things that happen when you have economic reacceleration? Interest rates rise, and a huge part of the value index is banks, and banks do well in rising interest rate environments. The second thing is oil prices tend to go up. 
and a big chunk of the value index are energy companies. And so that's a big help for them, but not only energy, but also industrials and materials that are in many ways linked to that ecosystem. So the, the environment that we're in, where inflation expectations do well, um, do I think that, again, do I think that this is a five-year story? No, I don't. But do I think that this is a story for the next six or nine months or longer? I, I, absolutely, yes. One thing really to consider is I mean, looking at countries like China, um, they've seemed to contain this pretty well. But in a broader spectrum, when we're looking at you know pure demographics and a geopolitical standpoint, uh, investing in emerging markets, at least in my understanding, seems to be a trend that makes sense. In the OECD right now is estimating that by 2030, the global middle class will be 4.9 billion. Uh, that number was 1.8 billion in 2009. So Asia may comprise of 59% of the middle class consumption, and that number in 2009 was 23%. But there's some definitely backdrops uh, in terms of, you know, a lot of these indices have, you know, what's known as SOEs or state-owned enterprises. They are typically, you know, prone to corruption and bad governments governance. So. How worried should we be, you know, when we're looking at that in terms of emerging market investing and, and what do we think about emerging markets overall, you know, in the next couple of years? So I, I, I think that there's a, a, a couple of sub, a couple of assumptions here, a couple of sub themes. There's a big difference between economic success and, and market success. So you should see in many of these emerging markets faster economic growth for demographics reasons, which you stated, and, and that's true. Um, the what, what I think some people underestimate is that while we think that the U.S. population or Europe is or, or Japan is experiencing a s- slower demographics as people are having fewer babies and people know about the one-child policy in um, you know in in China, in reality. Um, much of the emerging world has, is moving in the, in the same direction. So the birth rates in, in South America, I think, are pretty similar to that of the United States at this point in time. Uh, India has, I believe, the average Indian woman is, is having something like uh, less than two and a half uh, children. And so what we think about India is having this huge, in, incredibly huge growth rate. And, and yet that has, has, you know, meaningfully come down. It's not obviously as low as Italy or, you know, or, or, or Canada or France, but, but it's, it's come down um, quite a bit. So the, the directional move is for uh, birth rates across the whole world to decline. The, the big difference between emerging uh, economies, uh, especially in places like Sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East and age of the population is really young. So the average American woman may have children or two children or whatever that number is, but she's also the average American woman is, is 40 years old, where the average woman in sub-Saharan Africa may be, you know, maybe, you know, 25 or 35 or something. So, so there are, so, but, but there is a, a natural slowing on population growth that is happening in, in general. The, the second issue is to not mistake an economy for markets. So if you think about the, you were asking before about growth and value, and if you believe that intellectual property companies are going to be dominant over the next five years or, or 10 years or what have you, 
the question is, where are they? So I, it doesn't really matter whether it's an innovative company in China or an innovative company in Silicon Valley or in Israel or someplace else, but they, the majority of the world is, is not the, the, the companies in their stock market are things like banks and cement companies or, or, or mining companies or, or oil companies. And those are old economy areas. In many cases, if you look at this move towards being more environmentally focused, that some of these areas are going to be under a fair bit of pressure, you know, and like the energy industry and, and, and the like, and some of these materials-based kind of companies. And so when I look at the, the, just, you know, the population growth, there's no question that emerging looks really interesting. But when I look at the, where the most exciting innovative companies are, you know, they're, they're, the United States is, is by far, the, the most interesting. 50% of the S&P 500 is what I'll call intellectual property, either, either healthcare or tech-related. And I, I think that at the end of the day, that's probably what's, what's going to work. But if, if you look at diversifying your bet and say, okay, well, what's the best diversifier? If you're in the S&P and you're so heavily invested in innovation and technology, there is a place to, obviously, to, to put money in some of those other areas. And in, in certain... In, you're probably better off diversifying if you're going to diversify away from the U.S. You're probably better off doing it in emerging markets than you might be in developed markets because of their unique characteristics. But, but I, I think I'm probably giving you the surprise answer to that, which is I, I do think that the U.S. will continue to, to be a dominant force, in, at least in the stock market, if not in general. Well, excellent. Well, I think that's all the big questions we have for you, Jonathan. Um, Thanks once again for you know taking the time to walk us through some of these things. Uh, for all the listeners and subscribers out there, we'll be dropping this um, sometime late this week or early next week. Um, and with that, thanks, and, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.